This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Every day, the people of the United States Agency for International Development, USAID, work to deliver sustainable development solutions. In doing so, USAID advances U.S. national and economic prosperity, demonstrates American cooperation, and promotes a path to self-reliance and resiliency for aid recipients. The purpose of foreign aid should be ending the need for its existence, and USAID provides development assistance to help partner countries on their development journey to self-reliance, looking at ways to lift lives, build communities, and establish self-sufficiency. What are the key strategic priorities for USAID? How is USAID engaging the private sector to enhance development solutions? And what is USAID's digital strategy? I'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Bonnie Glick, Deputy Administrator at USAID. My co-host from IBM is Josh Mandel. Bonnie, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Josh, welcome. Thanks for having me. So, Bonnie, would you give us an overview of the history and mission of the U.S. Agency for International Development, known as USAID? Michael, I'd be delighted to. Hi. USAID, the United States Agency for International Development, was established by President Kennedy in 1961, and he set it up with the recognition that it is our moral obligation as a wealthy nation to help countries that are much poorer than we are. Over time, over the last nearly 60 years, the U.S. Agency for International Development has evolved its focus to focus more on countries and their journeys to self-reliance. What do we do at USAID? We reduce the reach of conflict around the world so that conflicts that are breaking out, wherever those may be, impact the fewest number of people possible. We work very hard to prevent the spread of pandemic diseases. So one that we're seeing right now that we're seized with is the Ebola outbreak in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. We work to counteract the drivers of violence around the world that can lead to instability and can lead to some terrible transnational crimes, things like human trafficking. We work to promote American prosperity through market expansions to enable the export of U.S. products. 
we create a level playing field for U.S. businesses around the world, particularly in emerging market countries. We support stable, resilient, democratic societies. And we stand with people around the world to support nations when disasters strike or when crises emerge as the world's preeminent humanitarian assistance provider. So how is it um, operationally with such an important mission, how is USAID organized? What's your overall budget? Some of the facts around this. Sure. It's useful to understand how USAID is set up. We are an independent agency of the U.S. government, and we are part of the president's National Security Council. The foreign assistance budget of the United States is around $40 billion annually, of which USAID holds the largest portion. We are the largest development agency in the world. So what are your responsibilities as the deputy administrator? Of USAID? That's a great question. The deputy administrator of USAID is the number two ranking person in the agency. I was nominated by President Trump and confirmed by the Senate to serve in this role. The deputy of most U.S. government agencies, with USAID not being all that different, is also the chief operating officer. So there's a big management component of the agency, managing uh, the agency's budget, managing a staff of 11,000 people in around 100 different offices and USAID missions around the world. I work closely with the United States interagency, part of the national security infrastructure, to craft the vision for foreign assistance around the world. So, Bonnie, regarding your uh, duties and responsibilities, what are your, say, I, I kind of always say three top management challenges, but what are your management challenges and how have you sought to address them? So, the biggest challenge of any U.S. agency is our budget. We have to ensure that we are excellent stewards of the taxpayers' dollars. Every single day, I think, how is it that I am making sure that we are using taxpayer dollars, your dollars, my dollars, the audience dollars, in the most effective and efficient way possible? The way that I'm focusing on this is by looking at USAID somewhat through a business lens. Hmm. So at USAID, the Agency for International Development, we talk about developing countries. In industry, you talk about emerging markets or growth markets. We at USAID talk about aid beneficiaries. IBM would talk about those same people as potential customers or clients. And I often say no mother wants to raise her child to be a refugee. Every mom wants her child to be a consumer. So looking at the best way to take U.S. budgeted dollars to focus on growth markets and emerging markets for potential future consumers is, I think, the best way to effectively, efficiently use taxpayer dollars to provide people around the world, too, with an additional margin of dignity in their daily lives. 
So budgeting is a challenge. In order to solve these problems, I want to engage with the private sector, both international corporations, American-based international corporations, but also local private sectors, because we want to make sure that Programs that USAID funds and runs are sustainable, and likely the best way for a program or a project to remain sustainable is by having it run through a private sector lens where there are benefits that accrue both to the investors, businesses, donors, as well as to the beneficiary community. Um, Another big challenge that we have is in the area particularly of humanitarian assistance. The United States is the largest global bilateral donor of humanitarian assistance. The United States will always be there when countries face a disaster. But it's really important that others contribute to these humanitarian responses as well. So a large component of what we do is working with other international donors to ensure that there's appropriate burden sharing in the costs associated with uh, humanitarian responses. And that, too, is a way of ensuring that we're good stewards of the taxpayers' dollars. But I am going to say, Michael, the biggest challenge that we face, and it's a challenge that really re presents itself in these developing countries' emerging markets, is that there is an attempt to foist other development models onto these countries, particularly when they are in a vulnerable place. And by that, I'm talking about uh, the Chinese model of development. It's really not about development. It's about uh, placing countries into debt traps that force them to give up national sovereignty. What do I mean by this? I'm just going to give you a concrete example of a Chinese so-called development project. China encouraged the government of Sri Lanka to finance a massive port through a Chinese program. By financing the port through China, Sri Lanka assumed that it would get a 21st century excellent port operation. It's an island country. Uh, water commerce is critically important for the nation's sustainability. China financed the port for Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka assumed that there would be job creation for Sri Lankans. Instead, the port was built by Chinese laborers that were imported into Sri Lanka. There was probably some fine print on the contract that said that if Sri Lanka was unable to pay off the debt that China uh, imposed, it would have to give up sovereignty over the port operations itself, including all associated profits, to the government of China, the Chinese Communist Party. Sri Lanka defaulted on the debt and lost control of this port. It is, in fact, a 21st century port. It was designed to receive 10,000 port calls a year. 
during the time that Sri Lanka held sovereignty, which was a short period, there were only 37 port calls. China built something for Sri Lanka that was not in the national interest of Sri Lanka. And Sri Lanka ended up shouldering this tremendous debt that it was unable to repay and lost its own national control over its national port. So that is an enormous challenge that as a responsible citizen of the world, I take very seriously. And I talk to developing country leaders about the importance of considering all aspects of development projects as they are presented, particularly large-scale infrastructure projects. Yeah, Bonnie, could you talk a little bit about what has surprised you most since taking on this new role at USAID as deputy administrator? Josh, that's a great question. The world has changed since I first started my career. And I started my career as a foreign service officer in the State Department almost 30 years ago. Almost 30 years ago, Bangladesh was the fifth poorest country in the world. I returned recently from a trip to Bangladesh, and I was surprised to see how thriving Bangladesh is, how markets are busy, how there is uh, tremendous economic activity. But most surprising was how Bangladesh now aspires to middle-income country status. This is a country that went from being the fifth poorest in the world, as ranked by the World Bank, to one that aspires to middle-income country status by 2030. It surprises me tremendously to see the strides that countries who have undertaken a very serious effort to develop and to grow economically have been able to. And it's really a great surprise. You mentioned starting off as an FSO. Could you talk a little bit more about your career path for listeners? Sure. I started my career as a foreign service officer in the State Department. That's as an American diplomat charged with serving in American embassies around the world. I worked in the State Department uh, as well as in the U.S. embassies in Ethiopia and Nicaragua, and I also served at the U.S. Mission to the United Nations. But at a certain point in time, I decided that for family reasons, it made sense to stay put in the United States. My husband and I were starting our family and wanted our children to be close to cousins and grandparents. So I took a turn and went to work for a company that maybe you've heard of called IBM. And I spent 12 years at IBM. I thought it would be interesting, having served in the public sector and in the private sector, to spend a little bit of time in the nonprofit sector. And I did that with a, an international focused nonprofit. But then I was asked by Maryland's governor, Larry Hogan, to come back into public sector. And I went to work as the deputy secretary in the Maryland State Department of Aging. That was a little bit of a turn for me. I didn't have any experience working in social services nor with uh, the aging population in particular other than that we're all aging. <laughs> so I want to keep doing that. 
And I learned a lot about services and service delivery in a way that is much closer to the beneficiaries. State government is much closer to local than federal government, particularly international. And then I was asked by the Trump administration to move over to USAID. So my career has gone through public, private, and nonprofit sectors. Bonnie, given that um, background and how many different sectors you have uh, either been in or led in, what is the characteristic? What characteristics makes an effective leader in your mind? And perhaps you could share with us some of your leadership principles that you that guide you. That's great. I think when I think about leadership, I actually have other people front of mind, people who have been great leaders and mentors to me. Uh, I am frequently asked by younger people to talk about what it means to be a mentor and would I mentor them. And one of the things that I say to them is you should never have just one mentor. And you gain different things from different mentors. You learn not just from their experiences, but also from the way they present. And if that's something that you want to do or something you want to avoid. But I think that in general, a leader is a good listener and isn't doing all of the talking. A leader is a good evaluator who can look at a situation and quickly distill what some of the driving factors are. And I think a leader has to be a tireless advocate for his or her mission's success. And leaders are of all age ranges. Young people start leadership in high school and college, where they are engaging their peers in a way that is inclusive. So I think overall, when I look at the people I look up to, they're people who listened. They're people who could evaluate a situation with a sympathetic and empathetic ear. And they're people who care about the work that they are setting out to do. And they bring others along to do that work alongside them. What are the key strategic priorities of USAID? We will ask its deputy administrator, Bonnie Glick, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Whitner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org.
Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Bonnie Glick, Deputy Administrator at USAID. My co-host from IBM is Josh Mandel. So, uh, Bonnie, the world is undergoing an era of remarkable development progress, which you noted in the last segment, but it's also facing some emerging and, uh, you know, increasingly complex challenges. And I, I want you to, to tell us more about USAID's policy firm framework. How does it represent the connective tissue between the, the notion and the actual work the agency does? That is great because the USAID policy framework aims to bring the sort of ethereal academic approach to development into the real-world operational space in which USAID is operating around the world. In April of this year, USAID released what we're calling the policy framework, and it actually articulates the agency's approach to our mission, vision, and strategic orientation around what we refer to as a journey to self-reliance. The policy framework will allow us as USAID to be a better partner, strengthen our ability to accelerate development progress while meeting urgent humanitarian needs. And it makes USAID a more effective provider of foreign assistance on behalf of the American people. To capitalize on development gains and respond to complex challenges that present themselves in the new development landscape, we focus on what we're referring to as a journey to self-reliance. At the same time, we're transforming our organization with a single goal in mind, working to end the need for foreign assistance. Our development model is rooted in building self-reliance in each of the countries in which we operate. For USAID, this is an explicit pivot toward a much more country-centric, locally-led, and data-driven approach to development assistance based on proven development best practices. Our model of assistance promotes balanced trade, open markets, democratic norms, and social inclusion. This means enabling locally-led problem-solving for enterprise-driven growth, inclusive societies, and transparent, accountable, citizen-responsive governance so that our partner countries have both the commitment and the capacity to solve their own development challenges. I'm going to distill that really quickly into what we mean by a journey to self-reliance because this underpins everything that we're working to accomplish at USAID. We look at countries. Remember, we were talking earlier about developing countries versus emerging market countries, aid beneficiaries versus customers and clients. In order to reach that next stage, emerging or growth markets, clients and customers, a country needs to have everything in place for its citizenry and its nation state to be self-reliant. That doesn't mean not in receipt of foreign assistance, but it means in ownership of its own destiny, that a country can make decisions that are based on its own self-interest that will allow it eventually to eliminate the need for receipt of foreign assistance. Our goal, ultimately, as I said, is to end the need 
around the world for foreign assistance. Of course, different countries are in different places along that journey to self-reliance. So there are countries that are at the beginning stages and countries that are closer to transitioning from an aid recipient country to a more partner centered country and even in many cases to being a donor country itself. So, you know, as a follow-up, I'd like to understand, maybe you could briefly identify AIDS' current key strategic priorities. Sure. As you can probably guess from a journey to self-reliance, a major focus area for us is private sector engagement. Mm -hmm. Having global and local private sectors engaged to build up a country to allow it to have sustainable growth over the long term. That is a key to self-reliance. We're also focused on women's economic empowerment and ultimately as well from the humanitarian side, maintaining a focus on the world's most vulnerable populations. So, Bonnie, Digital technology is transforming the way that people access information, goods and services, and that certainly applies to the countries in which you know, USAID operates. Would you tell us a little bit more about USAID's digital strategy and how are you working to end the need for foreign assistance leveraging uh, digital technology? USAID's digital strategy uh, will focus on USAID's long history of innovative digital development efforts. These include that USAID co-drafted and was the first official endorser of the Principles for D Digital Development. It led a public outreach campaign, which has resulted in the endorsement of over 100 organizations, including the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the World Bank Group, Swedish Aid, which is known as SIDA, and Aid out of the UK, which is called DFID. USAID also co-founded something called the Better Than Cash Alliance, as well as the Alliance for Affordable Internet and the Digital Impact Alliance, which have been industry leaders. And we also launched something that we call the Women Connect Challenge. USAID has been at the forefront of fighting to close the digital gender divide. The potential for digital technologies and services to drive widespread economic growth, to improve health outcomes, and to lift millions of people out of poverty is clear. But significant barriers still remain, and the resulting gaps can slow global growth. They can increase a country's risk of instability, and they can help keep countries dependent on foreign assistance. Right now, for example... Four billion people in developing countries do not have access to the Internet, and 1.7 billion women still lack access to a mobile phone. At the same time, digitally enabled disinformation campaigns and emerging cybersecurity risks can further threaten stability and introduce violent conflict. So it's important as an agency that we look at ways to foster digital self-reliance as part of the journey to self-reliance. So as a follow-up to that, is there a digital pathway to self-reliance? I mean, what is being done to to build that pathway? That is a great question. There absolutely is a digital pathway to self-reliance. Connectivity, 
delivered through wireless telecommunications networks is critical for development. Countries with strong digital ecosystems foster more self-reliant and resilient societies, which in turn invest in their own infrastructure. It's a virtuous cycle. USAID plays a critical role in increasing the effective and responsible use of digital development and also creates a runway for the private sector to drive long-term growth. This is sustainable, and it makes for an excellent investment in open, interoperable, inclusive, and secure Internet, all of which are critical to maximizing the positive values of the Internet. Through our commitments to digital programming, we can measure how technology and services help individuals experience economic empowerment and financial inclusion. It also advances a country's national security, and it supports accountability and transparency in governance. So it's hard for me to think of a better way to lead toward self-reliance than along a digital pathway. So along the same lines, there's been a thread in some of your comments regarding sort of women's empowerment. You know, we mentioned the national, the president's national security strategy. That strategy clearly recognizes women, women's empowerment as a top foreign policy priority. What is USA doing in this area? So at USAID, we're boosting women's empowerment as one of our highest priorities. We believe that investing in gender equality and women's empowerment can help eradicate extreme poverty, build vibrant communities, and unlock human potential on a transformational scale. The national security strategy clearly identifies women's empowerment as a priority that is integral to economic prosperity and global stability. So the Women's Global Development and Prosperity Initiative, which we call WGDP, the WGDP initiative is a first-of-its-kind whole-of-government effort that will transform the lives of women around the world. This WGDP initiative aims to reach 50 million women in the developing world by 2025. That is a huge task ahead of us, and we're going to focus on three critical areas. The first is advancing workforce development and vocational education to ensure that women have the skills and training necessary to secure jobs. The second area is promoting women's entrepreneurship and providing women with access to capital, markets, technical assistance, and networks. And the third area is striving to remove the legal, regulatory, and cultural barriers that constrain women from being able to fully and freely participate in the economy. USAID recognizes that women's empowerment and leadership is critical to breaking cycles of conflict and violence. USAID supports global programming designed to empower and protect women and girls in countries affected by crisis, conflict, and violent extremism. Since 2017, USAID's Women, Peace, and Security activities have supported the participation of nearly 70,000 women in political and peace-building processes and provided health care, psychosocial support, legal aid, and economic services to over 6 million women survivors of gender-based violence. So 
Uh, Bonnie, switching gears a little bit, but it gets to the heart of one of your biggest initiatives. And it's the, what are you doing in the area of optimizing the country's humanitarian assistance? And how does the organizational support the administration commits to optimizing USAID's humanitarian investments and ensure the seamless blend of food and non-food humanitarian aid? As I mentioned before, USAID is undertaking an agency-wide transformation. Part of that is ensuring that we have a seamless blend of food and non-food humanitarian assistance. What does this mean? Many people think traditionally about USAID in the time of crisis, particularly in the time of famine, as coming to a country and unloading huge sacks of grain and rice and feeding a population for a period of time to get through a drought, to get through a famine, and then leaving. And that's never been what USAID has done. USAID has always been on the ground from the time of crisis through the time of development to a period of self-reliance. However, it's important for us as an agency, internally as well as externally focused, to show the world that there is a continuum that goes from crisis through development to self-reliance. And that resilience is with food and non-food assistance. So USAID will always be there in a country's time of crisis to provide food, medicine, shelter. You can think of the recent Hurricane Dorian in the Bahamas, where USAID was immediately on the ground with search and rescue, with humanitarian assistance, with shelter, with food. But we will also be there in the time of crisis to help countries regain their footing to become self-reliant moving forward. So we've undertaken an effort within the agency structurally to set ourselves up to have that seamless blend from crisis through to self-reliance. In staying with self-reliance and fostering that concept in partner countries, how do the country roadmaps fit into it? So one of the really neat things that we're now into the second year of doing is we publish country roadmaps for every country in the world that is uh, an upper-middle-income country down to a low-income country. And there's an individual page in the roadmap for each country that lists out 17 indicators that we measure to determine both a country's commitment to development as well as its capacity for development efforts. And we measure this and we break it down into what we all know is those magic four quadrants with the country showing the highest capacity and the highest commitment to develop in the upper right quadrant, but also helping countries see where they fall in the broad spectrum of over 100 countries that we measure. We look at things like uh, the education sector, the health sector, the entrepreneurship landscape, a number of different indicators, 17 as I said, to show where each country falls in the development landscape. And we distribute these to 
the host countries in which we operate to help them see where they fall relative to the regions in which they live. We found that they are tremendously valuable and extremely well received by the countries in which we're doing work, the countries we refer to as our partner countries. They can see the steps they need to take concretely to advance along their journey to self-reliance. We deliberately call it a roadmap because it does reflect the journey that countries are on. And anybody who's interested in looking at particular countries or where countries fall relative to others can go online and look at our USAID website. The website itself is selfreliance.usaid.gov. What does the future hold for USAID? We will ask its deputy administrator, Bonnie Glick, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Bonnie Glick, Deputy Administrator at USAID. My co-host from IBM is Josh Mandel. So, Bonnie, you've mentioned a couple of times the the change in culture and approach to uh, development um, that you're taking. It's the private sector engagement policy I really want to get elaborate on. Can you tell us more about it? Sure. USAID is undertaking a major cultural and operational transformation to expand our engagement with the private sector. This will help us achieve outcomes of shared interest and shared value. One of the things that we focus on is open markets. Open markets send signals to investors, both internal investors in the country and foreign direct investment investors. The private sector we view as the most significant force in history for lifting human lives out of poverty. We're looking at ways to move countries from being foreign assistance recipient nations to foreign direct investment recipient nations. Perfect. So as a follow-up, I was wondering if you could highlight some of the successes related to this engagement. What's next in the area as well? So one of the most exciting developments in the past year was the passage of the BUILD Act in Congress. The BUILD Act led to the creation of the new U.S. International Development Finance Corporation. Shorthand is DFC. 
the new Development Finance Corporation, DFC, will combine all of the existing loan and loan portfolio guarantees that USAID has had historically through our Development Credit Authority. Our Development Credit Authority will be augmented with political risk insurance, loans, and loan guarantee products from the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, which was called OPIC. The new DFC, then, as you can see, is a blend of OPIC and some of USAID's assets that will also have the authority to make direct equity investments in projects. We're looking forward to working closely with the DFC to use its expanded set of potential tools so that we can directly support even more market-driven, private sector-led solutions at a larger scale than ever before. One great illustrative example is something that our team put together last year with USAID's Land and Urban Office. It's a new program to address the widespread problem of plastics in the ocean. USAID provided support to an entity called the Ocean Fund with a loan portfolio guarantee. Our guarantee enabled the fund manager, Circulate Capital, to raise up to $35 million from key private sector actors to invest in companies all along the plastics recycling value chain. So investors that came out of our small loan portfolio guarantee, investors include Pepsi Company, PepsiCo, Procter & Gamble, Dow, Danone, Unilever, and Coca-Cola. Borrowers under the guarantee will be private sector enterprises that work in either the collection, sorting, recycling, or manufacturing parts of chains throughout South and Southeast Asia. The result is projected to bring significant market-based private sector-led improvements in the overall recycling value chain and reduce plastic waste flowing into the world's oceans. Bonnie, could you talk a little bit about how partnerships and collaboration are uh, improving USAID operations and helping the agency deliver greater development outcomes? One of the things that we see clearly around the world is that there is no one who has a monopoly on great ideas. And it would be haughty for us to think that we were in that category. It's critical for us to turn to partners from anywhere they may come from to focus on co-creation and collaboration so that we can get those great ideas out there. Part of the reason that I get so excited by this is my past work in IBM Research. IBM Research, as you all know, invests heavily in the creation of new ideas, new inventions. And if we can take just a little bit of what IBM Research and other research entities do and infuse it in our culture to reach out to others— Uh, through grand challenges to gather in ideas for innovations from any corner of the earth to come up with solutions to some of the hardest problems, then I think that we've done the U.S. taxpayer as well as citizens of countries in which we operate a huge service. 
Speaking of culture, um, how does USAID ensure and foster a culture of integrity throughout the agency? It's really important for USAID to foster a culture of integrity as well as accountability within the agency. We have to recognize as an agency that we are responsible for delivering assistance to some of the most vulnerable populations on earth. And in so doing, we need to make sure that we are responsible to and accountable for behaviors that are directed towards some of these aid beneficiaries, all of these aid beneficiaries, really. We have taken up something called the Action Alliance for the Prevention of Sexual Misconduct. When you think about vulnerable populations, you immediately can draw ideas of the vulnerability to things like human trafficking or sexual exploitation and abuse of aid beneficiaries. We, along with our partners across the donor world, have undertaken really significant efforts both to raise the profile of sexual exploitation and abuse and to be accountable for areas where this happens. USAID is very fortunate to have collaboration with partners from the contracting community to the NGO community who work with us collaboratively all over the world. And our partners in the contracting community and in the NGO community, as well as in the international organizations community, UN agencies, have signed on to help us and to help the other donors around the world to prevent sexual exploitation and abuse of aid beneficiaries. We also have looked internally at aid and put into place safeguards to prevent sexual harassment in the workplace. We have to understand that we are accountable to everyone, whether it's internally at aid or to some of these extremely vulnerable populations to protect them from sexual exploitation and abuse. So, Bonnie, um, are there any key accomplishments you'd like to highlight uh, since taking over as, as deputy administrator? And, and what's the future hold for USAID? So, Michael, that's a great question. The future for USAID, we like to say, is working ourselves out of a job. <laughs> a perfect world would have no need for foreign assistance. Reality is, I think I'll have my job for a little while longer. But ultimately, that's our goal, is to end the need for foreign assistance. When I look at the key accomplishments that we've had under the first term of the administration, I look at the advances that we've made in women's economic empowerment. I look at some of the tremendous successes that we have had in responding to humanitarian crises around the world. When you look at what's happening today in Venezuela— you see a country that used to be a wealthy country, but for the leadership of a dictator, which I would actually not really call leadership, but the destructive practices of Nicolas Maduro and the thugs that he has around him, Venezuela has cascaded into poor country status. 
The fact that USAID, as well as others in the international community, have had to respond with humanitarian assistance is something that in my lifetime I never thought that I would see, a rich country becoming a poor country. But our response to help the people of Venezuela, five million of whom have been forced to flee their country, mostly to other countries in the region, has been extraordinary. We've provided support to the government of Colombia, which has been heroic in its acceptance of Venezuelan migrants across the border. We've provided humanitarian assistance to other neighboring countries, Peru, Ecuador, Brazil, Curaçao, Aruba, other countries in the region. And we've done it all with a lens toward the day when Venezuela will be able to reclaim its greatness and rebuild from the decades of deprivation it has suffered under Nicolás Maduro and Hugo Chávez. We're going to have to do this with the private sector. It will be the most effective and efficient solution to bring in the private sector and other investors to help rebuild countries like Venezuela that have suffered in this way. We look forward to that day to continue to provide the assistance required to our partner countries around the world. So, Bonnie, what advice would you give someone who's considering a career in public service? The United States needs great participants at all levels. So whether that's a young person who is looking at an entry-level position in federal, state, or local government, it's a great honor to serve one's community. It's a great honor to serve the public. And I do believe that service to our country is a great and high calling. But it also is a way for particularly a young person to see a lot of what they learn about in civics education starting in elementary school, to see what it means to serve your country and how your country operates. I can think of nothing better as a way to start one's career. Great. Bonnie, thank you for coming in today. But um uh, it's great to have you back in the studio. But more importantly, Josh and I would like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Thank you both so much for what you do. Uh, it's been a pleasure to be here. It's great to represent USAID. And I would just encourage all of your listeners, if you have questions about the United States Agency for International Development, to go to our website and learn more about it. We're at www.usaid.gov. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Bonnie Glick, Deputy Administrator at USAID. My co-host from IBM has been Josh Mendel. Be sure to join me next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. This is the Center This Week. 
highlighting the latest trends and best practices for improving government effectiveness. Brought to you by the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I'm Michael Keegan, Managing Editor of the Business of Government magazine. The Center this week is our opportunity to inform and, most importantly, to invite you, our listeners, to use the IBM Center for the Business of Government as your resource, a how-to resource for improving government effectiveness at the state, local, and federal level. How can performance management systems help government perform better? What more needs to be done? Today, I'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Professor Praja Trivedi author of Performance Management and Government, a primer for leaders. So, Apraja, on its face, the task of improving government performance um, looks daunting. Uh, but you point out there are three key facts that uh, need to be kept in mind. What are those? Well, it's really when you look around and you close your eyes, uh, Michael, you feel that uh, all the governments are conspiring to tell you the same story. And they'll say we are unique and we are different. But when they relate their challenges and their problems, they look similar. So in a sense, the first thing I've noticed is that many of the problems involved in managing government across countries are a result of a few underlying causes. So it's not like everyone has a unique problem. You know, they say it in a unique way. They may not say in exact words, but they're basically repeating the same problems which you observe across the countries. The second is that even the causes of poor performance are uh, similar. And third, of course, the solutions are very similar too. You find that countries that have really solved and overcome these challenges are using basically similar approaches. So there's a great deal of similarity, even though we may speak different languages, our GDPs are different, we are in different regions of the world, but there is a huge amount of similarity. So I have decided to focus on those similarities, mm-hmm. in both in identifying the uh, problems and as well as finding solutions. In your experience, what keeps government from being as effective as it can be or should be? And, and what are the typical causes of poor government performance? So government departments have too many people supervising them. Mm-hmm. Everybody feels they have a right to supervise a government department, whether it's the parliament, whether it is the uh, controller and auditor general, whether it is the administrative ministries, the regulators, the press even feels they have a right to supervise the government department and the vigilance agencies. So now that should not be a problem because after all, in the private sector, you have thousands of shareholders who also supervise their firm. The difference between the public and the private sector is, whereas in the private sector, they all have the same objective. All the shareholders are focused on just increasing their share value and making sure the company does well, not only in the short run, but in the long run. In the public sector, unfortunately, everyone has a different objective. Somebody wants political objectives to be met. Someone wants non-political objectives. Somebody wants efficiency. Somebody wants equity. And as a result, the government officials really do not know what is really expected of them. If they run fast, they are told, look, this is not a dash, it's a marathon, take it easy. Mm -hmm. If they jump high, they are told, look, this is not a high jump, it's a broad (laughs) jump. And so they decide, look, I'm just going to follow the rules, survive in the system, and if there is a collateral benefit to the country, then so be it. But I'm not going to go out and try, and that's not desirable. 
So that's cause that you can be sure you find, that fuzziness of goals and objectives. The other problem that you see all the time is the not-me syndrome. <laughs> you know, where anything happens, they'll say, it's not me. It's someone else is doing it. It's not me. So in the government, it's always pointing the fingers. So these are the two big problems. And you find most of the problems, if you mention to me, they will be symptoms of these two underlying causes. How do you define performance, or how have you? And more importantly... How can a government executive who is pursuing the same thing you've done um, but in a different context, uh, how can it ensure that performance management is more than, say, performance measurement? Performance, uh, the word could mean many things. There is ex-ante performance, which is I give you uh, an objective and then I hold you to account. The other is that I come back as an auditor and say, look, Michael, I don't know what your objectives were. You, you know, you were building a road. This road ain't good enough, right? You may say, look, I was only given this money and I was told to finish in uh, half the time and therefore this road is the best possible. I said, no. So that is exposed evaluation where I come back as a researcher. I don't talk to you. What were your constraints? I said, this road should have been like this. And then they could be partial then lots of people go and say, well, I'm going to look at skill development. Well, that's a partial indicator of a ministry of labor, which does a lot of other things. And you say, I'm going to look only at that. So that's like saying, you know, you focus in one particular area, you might get something done there, but the inefficiency travels to the other parts of the organization. So that's as opposed to a comprehensive approach. So you can have a comprehensive approach. So you can also have an approach which focuses on the performance of the manager versus an approach which focuses on the performance of the organization. Very different things. So managerial performance is really organizational performance adjusted for force majeure and exogenous circumstances. That's So there are a variety of performance. So my definition, which is the working definition, and that's why it has succeeded, is simply the difference between the promises you make at government department and the delivery, that's performance. Mm-hmm. Whatever you say. Mm-hmm. I didn't force you to say it, but you said, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. At the beginning of the year, at the end of the year, we simply ask, sir, what have you done compared to the promises you made? The difference between rhetoric and action is really the true measure of performance in my view. More information on this and other center resources is available at businessofgovernment.org. There you will find how the business of government is not business as usual. For the IBM Center for the Business of Government, I'm Michael Keegan, and this has been The Center This Week. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan-Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics. Urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more. Each week on the Business of Government Hour, government executives and thought leaders join host Michael Keegan for an informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. These individuals are truly changing the way government does business. So join them each week on the Business of Government Hour. Find out how the business of government isn't business as usual. The Business of Government Hour, every Monday at 11 a.m. on the Federal News Network.